Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, October 4th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Republicans sue in South Carolina to get their primary back. Biden raised less money than we expected. Warren raised a whole bunch of money, almost as much as Sanders. Matt Lieberman is running for Senate in Georgia. And a candidate anecdote from Sanders. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today in the ongoing saga of states canceling their Republican primaries, one state's voters are fighting back. In a tweet on Tuesday, Representative Bob Inglis of South Carolina wrote, quote, We want our voice back. We want to have a say in the direction of our party. Voting in a primary is the most definitive way to be heard. We want that for all South Carolina Republicans. End quote. So Inglis is a Republican who's been serving in the House on and off since 1993, and he is one of the lead plaintiffs in a lawsuit introduced this week. In a series of tweets, the nonpartisan nonprofit organization Protect Democracy explained their take on the suit. By the way, they are representing the plaintiffs in this legal fight. All right, so reading from their tweets, quote, Today we sued the South Carolina GOP on behalf of Republican voters, including Bob Inglis, for illegally canceling the party's presidential primary. South Carolina election law makes it illegal for party leaders to break their own rules to cancel an election just because they believe one candidate is more likely to win or because they prefer that candidate. So it violated party rules and state law for a small group of South Carolina Republican Party insiders to cancel the Republican primary. Note, this is different from past primary cancellations. In 2007 and 2013, the GOP-led South Carolina legislature changed state law to make it harder to cancel a primary. So the cancellations in 1984 and 2004, when Reagan and Bush were running, happened under entirely different laws. A small group of South Carolina GOP insiders has chosen a nominee by fiat, effectively disenfranchising hundreds of thousands of Republican voters and denying them their voice in shaping the Republican Party and what it represents. End quote. And, by the way, that Twitter thread just keeps going, but that's the gist of it. They link to the official complaint, which was filed in Richland County on October 1st. That complaint is actually worth reading as a model of clear legal writing, and it lays out the case in plain language. Now, a big part of the case has to do with South Carolina's laws about how parties can operate. And if I'm reading this complaint correctly, both the state's constitution and its laws require the party to follow its own published rules. So the twist here is that the party made a rule stating that it had to hold a primary. Then, this year, it broke that rule, so here we are. Now, you may ask, what is that rule, and how did it come about? Well, reading here from Quinn Hillier in the Washington Examiner, quote, Just four years ago, the South Carolina GOP argued in court that canceling the presidential primary would cause irreparable harm to the public interest, because the citizens of South Carolina deserve an opportunity to vote on the Republican nominee for President of the United States. 
A year earlier, the party adopted an official resolution lauding spirited and competitive primaries, in which Republicans do not wish to be perceived as a party that simply selects its nominees in a backroom or underhanded fashion, and asserted that anything other than a fair and legitimate primary where state party staff and officers avoid even the appearance of intervention could irrevocably damage the integrity of our primary process. End quote. And, by the way, most of that was in fact direct quotes from the Republican resolution and the party's statements in court. Now, the other interesting thing here is how the complaint lays out damages. It claims that Inglis, among others, intended to vote in the primary and had declared that intent before it was canceled. The argument here is that by canceling the primary, the state-level party is doing harm to him because the loss of that vote is material harm. It's an interesting argument, and while technically not the real heart of the suit, it's a very simple way to look at the issue in terms of disenfranchisement. Now, it's unclear to me what happens next in terms of timing and response from the GOP in the state. Of course, a South Carolina court should take this up, and we'll see how quickly that might happen. I will keep you posted as this develops. Next up, former Vice President Joe Biden announced his fundraising numbers for Q3. And they're not terrible, but they're also not amazing either. So first, let's get through the numbers, and then we'll talk about what they mean. Biden brought in just over $15 million in Q3. His campaign reported an average donation of $44, which, if my calculator is still working, means he brought in something like 345,000 donations, although we're not sure how many donors that might actually represent. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, in Q2, Biden raised $22 million, which is a heck of a lot more. And Q2 was actually a short quarter for him because he announced late in April, meaning he missed almost all of April as fundraising time. So the fact that his fundraising has declined since his previous short quarter is a real surprise. For somebody who spent the entire quarter as the frontrunner in the polls and holding high-dollar fundraisers, I would have expected him to raise at least the same amount as he did in the previous quarter. Biden's fundraising in Q3 puts him well behind both Sanders and Buttigieg, and somebody else we're about to talk about in the next story. Plus, this is now the second quarter in a row that Buttigieg has outraised Biden. Now, let's think about that for a second. Why is the Biden campaign not succeeding in bringing in the dollars when Buttigieg is? And why is the Biden campaign declining from one quarter to the next? Those are not the kind of questions you want to face when you're the frontrunner. They further push at the narrative that maybe Biden is slipping out of that frontrunner spot. On the bright side, it's possible that recent political developments have been helpful for Biden. Reading from his campaign email, quote, The last week of the quarter was the campaign's best week for online fundraising since early May, just a few days after the campaign launched. End quote. Translation, the impeachment stuff may drive increased fundraising for Biden. On the flip side, it is definitely driving big, huge fundraising for both Trump and the RNC. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, so now we've got to put that previous story in the context of this one. This morning, Senator Elizabeth Warren announced her Q3 fundraising. She brought in $24.6 million. Compare that to $25.3 million for Sanders, and I've got to say, those two are in excellent shape. Okay, so again, let's compare to Q2. Warren raised just over $19 million in Q2, so this $24 million plus is a solid increase from that. That's what you need to have if you want to demonstrate momentum in a presidential race. All right, reading here from a story in the Huffington Post by Kevin Robillard. Quote, Warren, whose steady rise now has her essentially tied with Biden in most public polling, had 943,000 donations from 509,000 different individual donors. The average donation was $26, and the campaign said that more than 300,000 people donated for the first time during the third quarter. End quote. Now, I know all these numbers probably kind of start to float together in your head. They certainly do for me. So let me try to sum that up. Warren had more than half a million people donate to her campaign just in Q3. That's a huge number, and the fact that the majority of that number are new donors is good news for her. The only candidate who's doing better on this stuff is Sanders. Warren's total donor number is around three quarters of a million, while Sanders has already passed a full million donors. Having said that, these are the only two candidates who seem to have such large bases. But in general, the biggest message here is that the candidates who are taking only grassroots money and aggressively ignoring those big fundraising events, like those $1,000-a-plate dinners, so far at least, they are raising more money. There are likely to be two big headline ideas going into this weekend related to this fundraising stuff. The first is that Biden is in fourth place in fundraising for Q3, and that looks pretty bad. The second is that both Biden and Buttigieg, who are doing those high-dollar events, are both behind these grassroots-only candidates. You can bet there will be dozens of deep thoughts about what that means over the coming days. And my final thought here is about the strategy behind when candidates announce their numbers. Warren could have announced this number alongside Sanders, and she could have gotten a media narrative that the two of them were almost tied with these really awesome numbers. But instead, she waited until a whole bunch of other people had released their numbers, notably Biden, and then dropped this big fundraising number. Now, that was a bit of a gamble, but right now, it sure looks like it paid off. Next up, Democrat Matt Lieberman has announced he will run for Senate in Georgia, hoping to pick up the seat soon to be vacated by Republican Johnny Isaacson. Now, as I've reported previously, Isaacson is leaving at the end of this year, which will leave his seat open for a special election in 2020. Okay, so who is Matt Lieberman? 
Well, aside from being his own person with his own identity, he happens to be Joe Lieberman's son. Now, for our younger listeners, Joe Lieberman was Al Gore's running mate in the 2000 election, and he served for a super long time as a senator from Connecticut. So, for some of us, seeing a Lieberman getting back into the political mix, especially in the Senate, is a real trip. Okay, so again, who is Matt Lieberman? Well, he's a 52-year-old businessman with two kids who just so happened to work on his father's campaigns over the years. And fortunately for him, he lives in Georgia. Reading from an article in Politico by James Arkin, quote, Lieberman said his father, who left the Senate in 2013 after serving four terms, the final one as an independent caucusing with Democrats, encouraged him to run, but also sent him a lengthy text of parental anxiety when he realized his son was serious about the prospect. Lieberman said his father will serve as a consigliere for his campaign after he convinced him he was prepared for the rigors of a statewide run for office. He's now back to excited, and I would say his competitive juices are flowing a little bit, Lieberman said. End quote. Now, I think we can all relate to how our parents flip out just a little bit when we decide to run for Senate, you know? Anyway, Lieberman released a jokey campaign ad on YouTube this Wednesday, in which he involves his two daughters and the family dog in a series of dad jokes mixing in some actual policy stuff. I'm going to play you a section here where Lieberman gets into policy, and you may notice a kind of rattling noise that comes in seemingly at random. That is actually a sound effect that happens when text comes on the screen in the video. So, no, you are not being followed by someone with a very quiet tambourine. In the beginning of this clip, he's talking about Stacey Abrams and her run for governor, and then, of course, he talks about the 2000 election, and so on. Okay, listen in. Last year, here in Georgia, we were given hope. For that hope to become change, we need to be sure that every vote is counted. To me, it's personal. In 2000, I watched as the Supreme Court stole the election and changed the course of history. We need a Voting Rights Act for the 21st century. So what are you going to do about these laws that ban abortions before women even know they're pregnant? I'll protect Roe v. Wade. Are you going to stand up to the NRA? I'll ban assault rifles and push for background checks on all gun purchases. How are you going to make Washington work for all of us here in Georgia? We need a constitutional amendment to end Citizens United. And I won't take a dime from corporate PACs. You got this, Dad. Go in. I'm in. So what happens next in this process is a big, messy primary. Now, Lieberman is the first Democrat to jump into that for Isaacson's seat. But there's already competition for the other Georgia seat, and that's a whole other story. And then the actual election for both Georgia Senate seats will happen in November 2020. In the meantime, Governor Brian Kemp is taking public applications to fill Isaacson's seat on a temporary basis. And there are apparently more than 500 people who have already applied for that position. Link, as always, in the show notes, just in case you're in Georgia and might want a little bit of time in the Senate. And last up today, a candidate anecdote from Senator Bernie Sanders. I figured this was a good week to hear from Sanders in his own words. Okay, so like I often do, I got on YouTube and pulled up a couple of dozen long, long interviews and book tour talks and speeches and everything I could possibly find. And here's the thing, y'all. It is genuinely hard to find Sanders telling a story about himself that doesn't just pivot straight into policy and issues. And that's fine. That's clearly who Sanders really is. 
but it does make it hard to find a candidate anecdote, which kind of by definition, I want to be about something other than politics, you know? But in this case, at least in all the material I reviewed, from what I can see of Sanders, his identity, his way of talking about himself, is to not talk about himself. It is to tell the very briefest of personal stories and then tie those to larger themes. So we're going to go ahead and embrace that here. This clip was posted to the senator's official YouTube account on August 16th, 2013. It is a detailed remembrance of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, roughly 50 years after it happened. And in this, Sanders does give a personal story, albeit a brief one, that really surprised me. Oh, and quick note, I did cut this down from the longer video to try to make it fit on the show. The full video is the last link in the show notes and includes some footage from MLK himself and photos of Sanders back in the day. Listen in. We're standing in front of the Lincoln Monument today, uh, one of the most beautiful buildings in our country and one of the most historic. And today, the area is filled with tourists. But 50 years ago, uh, there were several hundred thousand people here to listen to one of the most memorable and important speeches in the modern history of the United States of America. And that is the famous Martin Luther King Jr. speech, I Have a Dream. I remember that very well, not by simply seeing it on TV or reading about it. I was way, way back there, one of the several hundred thousand people uh, who was here. I came in on a bus from the University of Chicago, uh, where I was then going to school. I remember the day very well, uh, and I remember the, the moment, the, the period well because up at the University of Chicago, where I was then going to school, we were working uh, with young people in the South. There was then an organization called SNCC, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We were helping to raise some money uh, for their efforts to uh, desegregate the South at the same time as we were working on issues uh, in Chicago. I think as we reflect back on this very, very great man, uh, certainly one of the great uh, leaders in American history, we understand that in one hand, we have come a very, very long way in achieving his vision of a country which, in which there's far more racial justice today than there was in his lifetime. Uh, many of the barriers of segregation have been broken. Uh, I think he would have been very surprised to know that in the year 2013, not only would we have an African-American as president of the United States, but that gentleman would have been re-elected. So in that sense, and in many other areas, we have come a very long way. We have a right to be proud of our accomplishments. But on the other hand, let us not forget that what King was talking about was not only racial justice, he was talking about economic justice. When he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, he was there not on a quote-unquote civil rights demonstration. He was there working with mostly African-American garbage collectors, people being exploited, people who are earning inadequate wages, people who had terrible working conditions. And he said they deserve justice. He was working on a major project called the Poor People's March, not just for African-Americans, but for whites, for Hispanics, for Native Americans. And the point that he was making was that in a great country like the United States, we should not be spending huge amounts of money on the military when we had children in America going hungry. We should not be having the kind of income and wealth inequality that we had, where so few had so much and so many people had so little. And the truth of the matter is that 50 years later, in many ways, that aspect of King's dream, the economic aspect, is not only not better, it is probably worse. Black unemployment today for young people, youth, 40%, more income and wealth inequality today 
than existed during King's period. $600 billion being spent on the military today when we have a lot of people struggling to purchase food or to pay for prescription drugs. Unable to afford to go to college, people working at $7.50 an hour, unable to pay their bills, unable to have the money they need, the income they need to live with dignity. We have come a long, long way in a lot of areas in fulfilling some of the visions that this great man had. But on the other hand, let us not forget for one second that a lot of what he talked about, a lot of his dreams, still have not been fulfilled. So we got a lot of work uh, that remains in front of us if, in fact, we are going to fully honor uh, and give respect to this very, very great man. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, so today is trash day and recycling day and composting day, so I'm finally getting to hear the effects of these supposed sound-reducing panels in the windows. And they definitely help, I think, a little. I mean, I don't know about you, but I heard fewer dump trucks on today's show than normal. Now, this weekend for me, it's fall cleaning time, and that kind of means do that dumb house project you've been putting off before it literally freezes time, so I gotta get in there and scrub all the things and disconnect all the things and replace all the things and all that good business. I hope you have something just as exciting on your list. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.